Hello and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by really an old friend, not old chronologically, but old in terms of duration of friendship of Yankee Institute, uh, Jack Horak. And Jack has been uh, a a Yankee board member in years past, no longer current, but he has been a friend to Yankee Institute of many years and really has deep and abiding connections to many nonprofits throughout Connecticut, throughout especially the Hartford area, and a deep knowledge of nonprofits generally. For years, he was a partner and chairman of the nonprofit organization practice group at Reed and Riga. And now he decided, for reasons we're going to talk about, to go and serve as an attorney at and a nonprofit advisor at the Tango Alliance. He is the author of a book about best nonprofit practices and someone who is just an all-around wise man and general good guy. And we are so <laughs> delighted to welcome him to YCT Matters. Jack, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Carol. Thank you for the opportunity. So, Jack, talk Talk to us a little bit about why you thought it was important as someone who was, you know, a, a very prominent attorney and business leader in terms of advising nonprofits, why you decided to go tell us a little about Tango Alliance and what led you in this direction. Yeah, thank you, Carol. You know, I started practice in 1980. And in the mid 1990s, I got a sense that nonprofit institutions, you know, tax exempt under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code, were underserved by by law firms and lawyers, primarily because historically nonprofit meant non-fees, no fees to be paid, and and it wasn't a, a good area. I trained as a corporate and tax lawyer, realized that the nonprofit sector was extremely complicated. It, it had the degree of complexity had grown exponentially over the years. And I began to believe that there was actually a need for a quote-unquote business lawyer for non-business entities, so to speak, taking business approaches to nonprofits. And I went to my partners and said, I I think I I can make something out of this. And so we started publishing a newsletter. And over the years, it grew to probably the biggest part of our law firm at the time. Um, And and I did it in part, Carol, because of of, of, of a belief system that's that's the core of Yankees. I mean, I, I'm an unrequited capitalist. You know, I believe in free market, free enterprise, property rights, and I think capitalism gets a bad shake these days. And because I, I saw the nonprofit sector as unique in world history, and it really is. If you think of the cultural and economic evolution going back to the pyramids, you know, and the Code of Hammurabi and all that stuff. Right. What happened in the United States and in England was really amazing. A system developed that allowed for individuals to make donations of their property, whether it's a dollar or an endowment, right? With that property thereafter being perpetually restricted for use in fulfilling charitable public purposes. The property right to do that just doesn't exist in other parts of of the world, in in Europe and in China. So it's a unique phenomenon that developed really over five or six hundred years in in Europe and became part of American culture. You know, it's so interesting because I read somewhere that in Russian, 
there isn't even a word for charity. The concept of it is so foreign that there isn't even a word in the lexicon, which I just thought was fascinating. Yeah, and and the historical part of it comes from, you know, the fact that after the fall of Rome, you know, the Catholic Church was the only institution standing in the West, right? And as we know, there was a history of hundreds of years of battles between monarchs and the church over who controlled the world, you know? But but as that evolution took place, what happened was that the concept of charity, which really comes out of Christianity, Mm -hmm. got welded or melded into the English law of property. So that we don't have church-state separation, we have church-state separation, but not uh, not charity uh, government separation in this country. I mean, the, the civil law represents, re- acknowledges, and enforces charitable restrictions on assets that that individuals can create, and it, it's a marvelous system. Sorry, will you say that again? You lost me. Sorry. So we do have church-state separation, but so we not, don't but have charity ch- charity-state separation. Ah. In, in the sense that the government, the civil system, recognizes the legality of charity yes. and recognizes the legality of charitable restrictions on assets imposed by donors. Yes. And, and that, that is a, a really unique phenomenon in, in the history of the world. And one of the reasons why I find it, found it fascinating. Well, I could go on and on. Well, but, but I mean, you, no, you know it's I'm interesting. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about how in America, you talk about a metaphor of a three-legged stool. Can you yeah. can you sort of expand on that? Sure. If you th- think of the American culture and economy as a stool, as the flat part of the stool that we sit on, there are three legs believe it. One is, of course, the governmental sector, state and federal. One is the private sector, you know, businesses. And the third is the nonprofit sector. It's one of the fundamental legs that holds up the American system and the American culture. Um, and it's vitally important. Um, if you think about it, Carol, we're likely born in a nonprofit. We die in a nonprofit. And along life's journey, we are touched by nonprofits in so many ways, whether it's you know, the, the, our kids' athletic leagues, colleges, universities, hospitals, civil, you know, social service agencies, they're all around us. And they are like the glue. They're like the glue that kind of helps keep the, the, the everything together. And, you know, one of the things I like about the kind of three-legged stool system we do have is that we can really think about these charitable organizations as what some have called mediating institutions. It's one of the things that help protect us from simply having government as our know-all, do-all, and be-all. Exactly. You know, that's why I notice that people who are fans of big government or people who want to increase the power of government one of the first things they do when they take power is try and sort of edge out these community organizations or do things so that they can sort of occupy the field in a certain right. area of endeavor. Because as soon as you sort of squeeze out all these small mediating institutions, it's much easier to be in control and dictate all the terms. Correct. I mean, and the word mediating institutions is near and dear to my heart, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been around for a while, but that's what it is. It, they are institutions, organizations that stand between the individuals and community and government at large. 
because they do a better job in government, you know, uh, in my opinion, um, for a lot of complex reasons we could get into, including regulation and everything. But, but, but they're vitally important. So uh, as a lawyer, to me, it was a twofer. I, I got to do legal work that I liked, but I also felt in my legal career, I was, I was actually doing something to support the principle behind these organizations itself, you know, and to help make nonprofits stronger in the communities where they exist so they could continue to do that, play that mediating role for the members of those communities. So let's talk a little bit how, in, in your experience, how nonprofits do in fact do a better job than government. Because, you know, a lot of us on the more conservative side of the road really do take this as an article of faith, but often we don't really break down and discuss in any sort of detail how and why that's so. And we do know it, but I think it might be interesting. Let me give you a perfect example, right? I spent a lot of time serving as a board member of nonprofits that took care of people with disabilities, intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities, right? And the organizations themselves largely had boards of directors that consisted of parents and family members of the disabled, right? They understood in gritty detail how difficult it is to raise a child with a disability, right? They were sensitive to the issues. They, they knew about the care needs. Um, and they were there giving their time and their love, you know, to an institution to help people with disabilities. They understood it. Contrast that with the state of, in the state of Connecticut. The, 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 I think it's called a DMR. I don't know what the acronym for it is now. DDS, the, the Department of Disability Services. I think you have. You know, I hate to say it, you have these union trained employees who do the task. They leave at eight. They leave when the clock rings, and they just don't have the same feel for it. In any situation, you think about that. When when a state official comes in, they have the power of the state behind them, so it becomes a difficult power relationship where in the nonprofit setting you don't have that. That's one example, but I think it makes the point. Well, it really does. I mean, in a way, it really is almost an analogy or a metaphor. It's almost like a family relationship versus a paid relationship. I mean, yeah. when you have the nonprofit, you know, the nonprofit really is it's more that experiential, flexible able to adapt on needs versus a contractual relationship where everything has to be homogenized and cookie cut and and political and political and political yeah and political the political fray affects those organizations where in, in theory anyway in the nonprofit area you, you don't have that um, and look, you know, the, the part about this that, you know, conservatives care. I mean, right. you know, I mean the, the idea that somehow you be, you, we don't care about people in these situations is, is ridiculous and, and insulting. Of course we care. You know, we're as human as the next person. We just happen to believe that, that the system for addressing these needs is best a decentralized system with community roots of the type we're describing. Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, studies show that conservatives tend to actually, on the whole, give more charitable donations than people on the left. And so I think to the extent that one's own personal giving is a proxy for caring, rather than simply feeling that one can just simply outsource one's caring through taxes and handing it over to the state, 
you know. It's skin in the game, Carol. You know, it's easy for, I've heard a lot of liberals say, let's let the government do everything. You know, it's like, well, no, you should do some work. You should get right. on the board. If you really, if you really care about racism in your community or you care about anything. What are you up. doing I mean, about it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I say man up. I don't know if you can say that these days, but step up, you know, <laughs> get on, get I'm on not going to get upset. I I don't know. No, get, get on a board, make a hundred dollar a year contribution, right. actually walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Yeah. Time, um, talent, or treasure. We're all three. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, but, no, it really yeah. is. It's remarkable. So, you know, during the pandemic, I know that, I know that, nonprofits were placed under some enormous pressure in terms of all three, right? Uh, time, talent, and treasure. So let's yes. talk a little about that and then a little bit about where the future is, because I think this is so interesting. If it's all right with you, we're just going to make this a two-parter. So we'll talk a little about this. Sure. And then next time, we'll talk a little about some of the more interesting and I dare say controversial reforms you've urged for the nonprofit sector. Sure. Uh, th that would be fun. Look, the look the, it's a big topic, Carol. And, you know, one of the conundrums in all this is the fact that most of these nonprofits depend heavily on government for funding. You know, you, you never, you, and, I, and I understand that. that. That doesn't mean government, the government should do that, I think. But, but, but what it does is it ties up through the terms of the grant the way the, the, these nonprofits run. And what happened during COVID, you know, they had the same challenges everyone did, you know, e and even more so because a lot of them had staff that were providing clinical care, for example, to people, you know. So they, they had to deal with worker shortages, the shutdowns, uh, the, the level of need for care only increased with, with, with time. And, you know, they qualified for PP loans, uh, which was grants, which was good, but it was a tough, it was a tough time for them, you know, as they struggled to meet, meet, meet their requirements, um, to, to meet the requirements foisted upon them by their mission, <laughs> you know, right. uh, in the context of all of the, the, the regulation they were subject to, you know, to, and, and, and all of the demands on their time. One of the things that is, I think, interesting to people and something I wasn't as fully aware of until I began at Yankee Institute was that there are sort of two different kinds of nonprofits. One are the sort of C3s like Yankee Institute that accept no government funds and go about, you know, in this sort of education, public outreach, you know, discussion type roles. And then some nonprofits are the kind that actually are in the business of the direct provision of services that in other contexts are provided by government. And I've Correct. been tremendously interested in those because Yankee Institute for years has held the firm belief that a lot of what as we were talking about, has been done by government, can so much more efficiently and effectively be done uh, by these nonprofits, partly because there are not the same unionization requirements, which allow them to cut expenses and cut so much of the bureaucracy and red tape that adds incredible layers of expense. Yeah, no, that's true. It, but having said that, in Connecticut, and I'm going to be very frank here, that the state employee unions are like tarantulas you know? <laughs> they've got their their legs into everything and, and and they have very strategically unionized the workforce of several different nonprofit social service providers and they, they, it, it's a ridiculous unionization move like i was on the board where it happened and, and i really fought 
fought against the union and they because i said we don't have any money i mean there's no there's no equity here there's no shareholders our budgets are public you know we don't have money to give raises and in fact we as board members wish the state others would give us money so we could raise wages for our employees we wanted more money we wanted to pay more for people but but we really couldn't because in, in this case the state wouldn't give us any more money and that was really fine with the SCIU because they wanted to they wanted the money to go to their higher paid brethren working at the state right they just and wanted the dues huh they I'm just wanted the dues yeah but but yeah, yeah, it, it, they wanted to do his revenue. It was a, it's strictly that. And, you know, to show you how vicious they were, I was on the board of this nonprofit and they plastered my neighborhood in West Hartford with posters disparaging me, uh, calling me a bad person, calling me against uh, someone who didn't like uh, workers. Um, yeah, I guess they tried to intimidate me, but it was ridiculous. Um, but just it just goes to show you how, how in the nonprofit space in Connecticut, the, the unions can be really uh, difficult, to say the least. I had no idea. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a whole, there's a, no, there's a yeah. Russian novel here. Yeah. There really is. There's a, yeah. there, this is Dostoevsky could take this one on, Carol. You know what I mean? I bet he could. I bet he could. No. So as we wrap up the first edition of this, talk to us a little bit about why, despite all the issues that beset nonprofits and everything, you know, you've come to write a book and you have come to rethink and make some of these proposals about nonprofit board pay, nonprofit management pay, a lot of things that you know, probably have lit some people's hair on fire, and I look forward to discussing them with you later. Um, you know, you you just have, have come to rethink this in a whole way, and when did you do this sort of mental flip that just really kind of flipped a switch with you? It took place over a period of years because I was, I was trained as a corporate lawyer, a tax lawyer, doing mergers, acquisitions, financings, and things like that. And as I started to get involved in the nonprofit sector, I, I came to believe that the traditional operating model for nonprofits, which um, which is um, everything has to be done on the cheap. <laughs> you, know, you know, we don't want and we expect everyone to give us all of their time and effort for free really didn't work that well in, in the modern world where operating a nonprofit was as complicated as operating a business enterprise, if not more so. And candidly, the volunteer model for board service didn't bring you the talent you needed to really operate an organization that has a hundred million budget, 800 employees, cars, uh, group homes, you know, contracts, bank lines of credit. I mean, it's an amazingly these are amazingly complicated. And to just rely on people to give their time to guide management is I think a bit of an anachronism, you know, and there's nothing in the law that prevents directors to be paid fees. So I would argue, look, since you're always having trouble getting volunteers to do this hard work on the board, why not think about paying like a lawyer or a banker or a business person or someone in your community $5,000, you know, for a year's worth of board meetings? No, no. To me and you, that's a common business expense. You would pay because it's a value exchange. You're paying $5,000 out, but you're getting the acumen you need on the board. But to say that as I drop your palm in, in the sector, oh my God, we can't do that. But the truth is you can, and you probably should. 
uh, if you're going to be serious about this. I want to hear more about this, and let's talk about it some more, because you're right. It is like dropping a bomb, but don't tell them, and let's hope they're not listening. I would pay much more than $5,000 for some of my board members, all of my board members. And so uh, and so I think I think you're really right. Exactly. It is a hugely, um, hugely controversial. Yeah. Just to give you a quick example, I know we're running out of time here. Like I, I sat in, I sat in on board meetings with board people who were presented the annual audited financial statement. And people didn't understand what an audit was. Didn't understand generally why an auditor was there, what, ex- what ex- generally accepted accounting principles were, and, and why it's important for board members to at least understand something about the audit process. And so when I wrote my book, which we'll talk about later, I put an entire chapter in there that explains the audit process in lay terms, you know, easy to understand terms like this is what a financial audit is and this is why you have to have it. Um, so there, there are the weaknesses like and that. And we Carol. need to know more about them and more about some of the reforms you would suggest for Connecticut and the nonprofit sector more generally. And then I'm going to go buy your book. Tell us what, sure. it's, uh, what the name of it is, Jack, and where people can find it. Yeah, it's called the Tango Nonprofit Method. Okay. Um, you can go to the Tango website, Tango Alliance. The Tango stands for the Alliance for Nonprofit Growth and Opportunity. And you can buy the book there. And in addition to the book, Carol, the, the book is designed to be a teaching system to teach basics to boards of directors to enhance their abilities, you know, to teach them about audits and what these things mean. And so there, there's the book. Uh, there is a series of animated and narrated PowerPoint slides I did that p- parallel the book chapter by chapter. And I even did a video lectures for the first eight chapters that Tango has partnered with Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire to put out in their, as part of their continuing education efforts. So that's the Tango initiative to find a way to bring my job there was to bring this type of learning and rigor to nonprofit organizations who you know, are serious about looking at what they're doing and maybe reconfiguring some of their operations. It is a marvelous mission. And to the extent that all of us are supposed to be, you know, hands and feet of service here on earth, um, you're really helping all of us to fulfill that mission, Jack. And we're grateful. We look forward to hearing more from uh, Jack Horak, who is one of Connecticut, if not nationally, one of the most prominent nonprofit attorneys out there. And uh, we will continue with Volume 2 with Jack Horak. And Jack, we're so grateful to you for joining us for this discussion. Thank you, Carol. No, thank you for the opportunity. I think conservative people out there are compassionate and care and want to do best for their communities as much as anyone does. Oh, absolutely. This is part of that discussion. This is part of that discussion. It is, and we are grateful to you for your uh, enormous contributions to it. We look forward to talking uh, with Jack Horak again soon. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place I call home.